Hi folks, Jason Crane here reminding you about the 100 by 300 campaign. The idea is to get 100 members by the 300th show. Membership is easy. You can do it in one lump sum each year or month to month for as little as 10 bucks a month or $110 a year. If you choose one of the higher levels, particularly the $500 a year or $50 a month level, you'll be mentioned on every single show. You'll be an official sponsor of the Jazz Session. The 100 by 300 campaign, visit thejazzsession.com slash join to become a member today. Once again, that's thejazzsession.com slash join. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of the show is available at TheJazzSession.com for free. You can download or stream the shows. You can also find it in iTunes, and you can use an RSS reader if you like, and the links for all of that stuff are available at TheJazzSession.com. Of course, you can also become a member, and I really need your help to do that, so please do become a member. And uh, this this show today marks uh, a little bit of a milestone, which is that it is the last phone interview that you're going to hear on the Jazz Session uh, for quite some time. And the reason is that, although it's not true as I'm recording this introduction, by the time you hear this introduction, it will be true that I am now living in New York City rather than in Albany. And that means that uh, I'll be just interviewing people face-to-face, which makes me extremely happy because uh, phone interviews are fine if you have no alternative, but they don't sound as good, and it's difficult to have the same quality of a conversation over the phone uh, that you can have face-to-face. So I am really looking forward to uh, the enhanced audio quality that you're going to experience on the jazz session in the uh, in the months ahead. And then eventually, at some point, I will get my little phone studio stuff set back up and... Uh, once I have a, a place to live. Uh, but as you're listening to this, I'm crashing with family in New York. Uh, so w- once I uh, you know, find a job and a place to live and all that good stuff, I will get my studio set back up. And then there'll be the occasional phone interview, but those will be pretty special circumstances uh, because most people come to or already are in New York at one time or another. So it's uh, it'll be fairly easy to get people face-to-face, I think. It would take me the rest of my life just to interview all the people who are already here in New York. So, uh, so that's that. Um, and uh, by the way, uh, your your memberships really do keep the show going. I don't know if I can stress that quite strongly enough. In fact, I can't. Um, but it really, really is crucial that you support the show, and I uh, hope you can find it in your heart to do that. And you can find out how to become a member at thejazzsession.com slash join. My guest today is a guy who I've known for a while online. Uh, I've, I tweet with him fairly regularly and uh, have exchanged some emails. He even made it into a, a poem that I wrote, uh, and then that gave Gloga set to music, um, which just premiered last week uh, as you're listening to this. Um, so Scott McLemore is has been in my orbit for a while. Um, I heard a, a brilliant version of A Love Supreme that, that uh, the Asa Trio that he plays in did, and they've got a new recording now of the music of Thelonious Monk, 
And here they are playing Bemsha Swing. My guest is Scott McLemore. He is uh, one third of the Asa Trio, and uh, they, uh, about a, I think about a year ago or so, they did a really fantastic uh, rendition of A Love Supreme, which is very hard to tackle, and I thought they did a great job. And uh, now they've got uh, a brand new recording of themselves playing the music of Thelonious Monk, and it is my pleasure to have Scott on the show. Thanks for being here. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, maybe we should just start out by, uh, by telling folks where you're based. Well, I am based in Iceland, of all places, but I'm not Icelandic, I'm American. How did you end up and, playing jazz in Iceland? Well, my wife is is uh, a jazz pianist whom you've interviewed sure. as well, Zuna, Zuna Gunlogs, she's a, a pianist, and we met <clears throat> actually at school at uh, William Patterson in New Jersey. And uh, then we moved to New York together, and eventually decided maybe uh, maybe it'd be a good thing to move to Iceland and a good place to have kids and that kind of thing. And how has it been for you as a place to play? Uh, it's been great, actually. It's it's totally different. I mean, in New York, I was really just focused on. I mean, it, you get really like uh, focused in on exactly what you want to do and I mean that's kind of what New York is about it's like finding who you are as a musician and uh, in Iceland it's much more like everyone is expected to just do everything and be everything and so for me it was a real learning experience moving here and uh, I mean really had to broaden my horizons and play a lot of different kinds of music 
that I didn't really think that I liked in a way and, and sort of learned to like a lot of different things. I'm actually even in a country band now, of all things, which if somebody had told me, you know, 10 years ago, you're going to be playing in a country band in Iceland. <laughs> I don't know what I would have said, but uh, it's happened. find that that has made you a stronger player when you're playing the music uh, music like improvised music that you're kind of most comfortable with i do i mean i kind of feel like anything anything you really do on your instrument makes you a stronger player but it makes me it makes me think differently i think about time and and uh you know it's just a different way of of approaching music really Will you say a little bit more about that, how it makes you think differently about time? When you when you start to play more groove-based music, you know, whether it's country or pop or whatever, I mean, I feel, I mean, jazz is definitely groove-based, but I mean, for the drummer, it's very open, at least in modern jazz, it's very, you know, you can sort of get away with a lot of push and pull in the time, and there's this sort of whole dance that happens between you and and the bass player in the in the rhythm section, you know, it's more elastic. In the other musics, it's it's a lot more regimented, you know. And you sort of you sort of stake your ground, and you know, if you're going to play like a little bit behind the beat or a little in front of the beat, and you sort of, I mean, that's where you are. And uh, and so for me, it's sort of I began to really think a lot more a lot more about time and specifically, you know, where I am in the beat and that kind of thing. Really eye-opening experience for me.
and I'm not sure if it's possible to describe this, but is it is there anything you can say kind of concretely about how that affects you when, for example, you're playing with the Asa trio? Uh, how does that that focus on time change the way you approach that music from what you might have done before you had all these other experiences? Oh well, I think I think it just really makes me uh, a lot more aware of what the you know, where I stand in relation to the other guys, especially like, you know, when Aki is playing, he's the organist, when he's playing a bass groove or something, he gets into a groove. It really, I feel, I think it, it makes me think differently about it and that I, I really hone in on the way we're hooking up rather than, I think before I would be much more sort of floating uh, up between everybody else, you know what I mean? Like uh, floating uh, over the groove. There's a uh, propensity among uh, jazz drummers, and obviously you only have to get that far in the question to realize that there's really no answer you can give because that's so broad. But do you, do you see any trend away from or tendency to stay away from kind of locking into a groove rather than that that floating approach to playing in, in modern drum? I don't know. I mean, I yeah, I mean, there's really, there's so many different Drum, I mean, every drummer has his own approach, but I feel like that has been sort of a trend just look at the history of jazz drumming, and it sort of has been on this more and more open path. Well, until you get to, like, real, like, free playing, and then it's, you know, it's, then it's just whatever, free-for-all. But I'm think I don't know, like, when I listen to, to drummers like, you know, Tom Rainey or Joey Barron, that are really, you know, free they, or and really interactive players. But there's an amazing amount of groove going on. Like the way that they play is very funky in a way, you know. And I think could, because they have so much of that background as well. I mean, like they've checked out a lot of a lot of different music. 
Will you uh, talk about the other two people who uh, make up the ASA trio with you? Sure. Um, Andres Thor, the guitarist, and he's actually the guy when when Sun and I decided to move to Iceland, uh, I got an email, like I guess he just heard through the grapevine that we were coming, and I got an email from him, like, booking me on my first gig in Iceland, and I was like, oh my gosh, I don't even know we're gonna, where we're going to live yet. <laughs> and uh, it, it was just an immediate hookup when we played together. It was just really... And we ended up going uh, going to the studio pretty shortly after I moved here and made a record with his band. And then uh, Aki is... Um, he actually... Um, I can't remember. I think he might have been a friend of Suna's before she moved to New York. I'm really, I'm not really sure, but but he actually came in and uh, stayed at our place, and then spent a little bit, a little bit of time in New York, like uh, six months or something in New York, and we played a lot together while he was there. So when I moved here, um, we immediately just started playing and it was just like picking up where we left off but I mean usually he's a pianist and uh, it's uh, so this is the the whole organ thing for him is an adventure as well I think you can kind of hear that in his playing yeah he's a I mean he's a heck of a player but uh, you definitely it's funny that kind of anticipates my next statement slash question which was that this this band, I mean, you just said it's organ, guitar, and drums, and that's a very standard organ trio instrumentation, but the sound of the band is anything but standard, and maybe that does have something to do with the fact um, that he was originally, or, or and primarily, a, a piano player. It reminds me, you know, much more of, and even this isn't all that similar, but much more of like the Larry Young kind of exploratory school of organ trio playing, uh, where there's just a lot a lot more interplay. The organ is not heavy-handed. There's a lot of blend and listening and uh, I just, I mean, I think the group, as you already know, just sounds fantastic and that you guys have found kind of a new, a different space to mark out in terms of how the, an organ trio works. Well, thank you. I'll, I'll tell him you said that. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe he'll just hear it himself. <laughs> Did you guys have conversations about uh, about how the the band was going to work? About what kind of material you were going to approach? Uh, you know, how has it worked out that you've been able to to kind of arrive at the sound that you have? Well, it was actually, I mean, it was kind of an accident. We there, I think there was a 
gig or something was happening on the jazz festival in Reykjavik right like the year that I got here and it was some something fell through and I think Andres had the gig and the, uh, for, for whatever reason it he called me in at the last minute and said do you want to come and play with me and Aki and I said sure and so we just came and he just called tunes and one of the tunes that we played was Bimsha Swing and it was just immediately it was like the best tune of the night and and after that it was kind of like wow well, you know would you guys like to play some more tunes by Monk you know <laughs> like we'd go and do a session together and and then we gradually sort of this uh, book that that Steve Cardenas transcribed of all these the only Monk tunes was published and so we all got the book and then it was like well let's just learn all of Theoloni's book's music and we haven't done that yet but that was sort of the goal and we just started doing some concerts of his music and and then it sort of expanded from there it was really like then uh, you know I brought in the Fiona Apple tune and uh, you know some guy one of the guys brought in some Wayne Shorter music and and then we just started bringing in our own original tunes too and so it sort of like became this whole sort of anything goes kind of project sort of stemming out from Theolone's Monk. talk more about the new uh, Monk recording in a minute, but first I want to ask you about tackling uh, Love Supreme, which, you know, as, as you know, I really, really enjoyed the way you, the three of you did it, and also, I think that's a, you know, a very dangerous work um, to take on, so can you talk about uh, how you decided to do that, and and uh, and then how you approached it once you decided you were going to give it a shot? Well, I mean, uh, <clears throat> I, I thought it was a horrible idea from the beginning. <laughs> I was really, I mean, and, Andres wanted to do it, and and me and Aki sort of looked at each other like, uh, really? <laughs> and, uh, it, it, you know, I had a lot of doubts going into it. It felt like, well, this is this is one of those things that, that you don't just, you know, you don't take it lightly. And uh, so I decided, okay, let's just let's just do it, and and it turned out be, to be great. You know, I mean, I was really just kind of stunned. At, I mean, I mean, I know we can all play, but I mean, I I guess it had. I felt like it had the the um, potential for disaster, really, 
because it, in a way, the, the music is so simple. You know, I mean, it's beautiful, but it's really simple. That there, you know, it's it's not like you have a bunch of chord changes that you can just sort of latch onto, and you know what I mean. It's like you really have to carry the thing the whole way, and it's all about the energy and the arc of it and the the intensity and the and the depth of it. Really, you know, I think it. I mean, yeah, I think it it turned out. Really, really well. All things considered, and I think it's, I'm glad that I'm glad they didn't listen to me and <laughs> and uh, decide not to do it. I think it's definitely helped by not having a saxophone player. You know, that's one yeah. pitfall to avoid. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I think immediately with the organ, uh, it, it just takes on a, a you know a space of its own. It's so interesting what you were saying about the the character of that music itself. I saw the other night a band of very famous people play Kind of Blue straight through. And one thing that it... uh, And I've I've kind of been having a discussion with some musician friends about this since I saw it. One thing that it really made clear was that Kind of Blue may not be the world's greatest repertory music because the music itself is incredibly simple and really what made that album special were the people who played on it. And so if you don't have, you know, John Coltrane and Bill Evans and Cannibal Adderley and Miles Davis playing over that music, it might not retain the same magic that it had when they did it. And I think the same can be true for pretty much anything. You know, it's like covering a Stevie Wonder tune. Ditto for all of John Coltrane's music. It's often very difficult, particularly in the later music, the kind of canon of his music, to, to approach that, given what he did with it, um, and how he was able to pull it off. And so, I, yeah, I, I think it was a very daring move, but uh, but as you know, I really think it, it came out well. Have you performed it again since you made that recording? No, no. <laughs> Maybe a wise choice. <laughs> yeah, you kind of want to wanna catch your breath after something like that. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> Uh, so uh, it sounds like uh, this this new recording of Monk's music um, is a is a long time coming because it sounds like that's where the 
the trio kind of cut its teeth. Uh, were there uh, any particular things in, in playing this music that you felt like you had to, to watch out for or to focus on? Um, not really. I mean, I, I felt like it kind of just, it kind of just, um, worked on its own in a way. It was like, we all loved the music and everybody had ideas for, for different arrangements and stuff. So it, it sort of, it wasn't like we had to sit down and say, okay, well, we have to, you know, try not to sound like Monk because, you know, Monk never played organ, so it's kind of <laughs> hard to to fall into that. And uh, so I guess I guess having the organ is really, uh, really handy in a way <laughs> for that. And using uh, Steve's book, as you mentioned, means also that you got probably the most accurate transcriptions of this music uh, that exists. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, and they even have, uh, it has sometimes, you know, alternate versions of the tune, you know, like he recorded it several times, and sometimes he plays the left hand like this, and sometimes like that. So, I mean, you had, it's amazingly uh, detailed. have a, uh, a favorite track from this recording? guess it would have to be the, the opening track, which is Bimsh Swing. And I, that might be just for sentimental reasons, too. That's the one that uh, kind of started it all for you guys, right? Right, because that was the first tune that we played together. Yeah, I think one of my uh, favorite performances on the on the record is San Francisco Holiday, which is a, a monk tune that I really love, and uh, and I think the organ trio sound just carries it off beautifully. I think it's a really really great great version of this tune. Well, thanks. Can you uh, uh, are you guys going to get a chance to? Uh, well, it sounds like you you do pretty regularly. Do you have a chance regularly to perform this music uh, in front of a crowd? Well, uh, not as much as we would like, you know, but we're trying to fix that. You know, we're trying to, I, I, I think that's really one of the the downside of, of living in a country so small is that, I mean, the, the scene is is dis, actually disproportionately large, actually, the jazz scene in Iceland. I mean, when you consider that it's only 300,000 people in the whole country and, you know, there's there's kind of a, a thriving jazz scene here, but there aren't enough venues or there aren't enough performance opportunities for everybody, you know. So we really are are trying to um, tour and use this 
recording as a way to, to start to travel more and get over to mainland Europe and that kind of thing. Have Iceland's recent economic difficulties uh, impacted the jazz scene there? I I don't know if it has, a, you know, directly, but I think everybody knows somebody who's been affected and insofar as that a lot of the, I mean, most of the people that play jazz here also teach at a drum school and, um, and all of the schools or almost all of the schools are cutting back so they're having fewer and fewer students and then there's also, you know, the side of it where the parents don't want to pay for lessons anymore and that kind of thing. So I think people have been affected that way. But I don't think as far as, um, you know, I don't know if there's fewer people going out because of that. I think it actually works, uh, you know, the opposite way a lot of times. When when the economy gets bad, then people tend to go out more, in fact. You know, I, I don't really know why that is, but uh, that's sort of the trend that I've seen. Is there any chance that we might uh, see you uh, over here in the U.S. playing anytime soon? There's nothing on the books right now, but I wouldn't, uh, I don't know. We're supposed to actually, uh, Suna and I are supposed to go to South America in May, and we're looking at um, possibly stopping off in the States and, and playing something there then. So it could happen. And I know you guys have kids. Do you take your kids when you travel to play? Uh, well, if we're going to the United States, we do. And we'll, so then we have, you know, the grandparents in Virginia Beach. And so they go there and hang out on the beach, you know, sip pina, pina coladas. And <laughs> <laughs> while mommy and daddy go off at work. Sounds very yeah. nice. Yeah. That's pretty convenient. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Do your, um, I always like to, to ask artists who I, I know have small children do your do your kids think it's just normal that that mom and dad play music like do they find it strange that other kids parents aren't musicians uh <clears throat> well i don't i i guess so i mean well i mean i guess they think it's normal you know they just i mean that's all they've ever known so yeah i mean they they say that's you know I, that i'm going to work you know, when I go to play the drums, uh, Dad's going to work. <laughs> That's really cool. So, yeah. My guest is Scott McLemore. He is one-third of the Asa Trio, and they've got a new recording of the music of Thelonious Monk, and there'll be uh, a link in the show notes for this episode at thejazzsession.com, so you can get that. And while you're there purchasing that, I also highly recommend that you pick up their recording of Love Supreme. Scott, it's uh, it's been great to talk to you. It's nice to uh, to hear your voice. We've tweeted back and forth and emailed back and forth many times over the last couple of years, and uh, nice to finally speak to you. And please give Sunna my best. Okay. Same here. Thanks a lot for your support.
My thanks to Scott McLemore. And once again, I say, and I talked to uh, Rodrigo Amado a few weeks ago in Portugal. The phone connection was great. I talked to Scott in Iceland, and the phone connection is great. I talked to people in New York City, and it sounds like uh, we have a Dixie cup and a thread, and they're under attack at the same time. So whatever Europe is doing with its phone system, it, it works, and ours doesn't. And so there's that. I'm Jason Crane. This is the Jazz Session, recorded uh, direct to 8-track tape right here in my studios in Albany for uh, the, the last time. Yay! Yay! Oh, that's wonderful. Anyway, uh, presented by All About Jazz, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of the show is available for free at thejazzsession.com and in iTunes and using an RSS reader and all that stuff. I'll come to your house and read you the transcripts or whatever. Actually, I think if you became a member and donated enough money, I, I would do that. Come to your house and uh, and read you the transcripts. Oh, and, and this is cool, if you listen all the way to the end, sometimes you get a little bit that no one else gets. Uh, soon, there will be live jazz sessions. You can actually come see the jazz session being recorded, and I'm not going to tell you any more than that, but... Very soon, extremely soon as you're listening to this, slightly farther away as I'm recording this intro, uh, but extremely soon, uh, if you are in the New York City area, you will be able to come and watch live jazz sessions. So, that's all I'm saying, uh, but I'm super excited about it. Okay, so, thanks to the Respect Sextet for the theme music to this program. They're online at respectsextet.com, and they're always playing and doing great gigs and recording wonderful albums, and you should just give them all your money. Uh, except for the little bit that you give me. Thanks also to Dave Rabel, who designed the show's logo and who is always making me laugh with his tweets at twitter.com slash Dave Vrabel, V-R-A-B-E-L. Get out there now, if you would, please, and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can, and then come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. <laughs>